Ready? I'll wait till I kick in there, but uh, whew, that was a good time of worship, amen? I want to uh, continue my series today on the overflow. I wonder how many of you feel like you're living in the overflow? We're under government restrictions. Some of us can't go to work. There's all economic insecurity, political insecurity, uh, everything going on. And then I'm here going, you got to live in the overflow. How many of you feel like you're living in the overflow? It's not enough of you because you're all going, uh, uh, uh. So I'm going to stand up, stand up. Everybody stand up if you can. It's okay. If you can't stand up, that's fine. But stand up. Okay. And we're going to pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you so much for your word. Lord, I pray you bless your word to our hearts. Help us to realize this morning, Lord, that our circumstances do not dictate to us how we are living in the overflow or not, Lord, but your word dictates, Lord, the truth in our lives. So, Lord, speak to us this morning. Lord, may that reside deep within us. Lord, and as we read in your word later, Lord, may you dwell in our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so that's the first lesson. Folks, your circumstances actually are just circumstances. And as we've learned uh, these last six months, circumstances can change overnight. You know, on the fun side, you know, uh, on, on the fun side for a city like Montreal, aren't we a little bit enjoying something right now? If you're a hockey fan, um, the Canadians were not supposed to make the playoffs and they got magically led into the playoffs. And the truth is they were only let in because they're Montreal. I mean, it's, the only reason they included Montreal and Chicago is because they can make more money having those two cities in the playoffs. And then now they're in the real playoffs and they won a series they weren't supposed to win. See, the players could have looked at their circumstances and said, well, all the experts said we're bad. All, I, have, I can show you a screenshot. I wasn't showing you. Every expert picked Pittsburgh to beat Montreal. All of them. And the players could have looked at it and said, well, the experts said we're going to lose. Sure, we're all players and we're all professionals and we'll all try, but we have no chance. But they didn't, did they? They went out there because the game is played on the ice, as they say, and in life as well, life isn't played in thoughts and ideas and, and, and in, on, on the new shows or whatever you're involved with. Life is played in real life. Life is, happens in real life. And that, your circumstances, do not dictate who you are in Christ and where you're going in Christ. I want you to realize that right now. You might have come in here this morning with burdens. Pastor Ramos sort of addressed that already. You might come in here with ideas, sickness, illness, weakness, whatever, thoughts. But we are not going to face those in the same way that everybody else faces. So let's recap a few. Last time we spoke, remember the verse we talked about? We said this, for we live in the world, we don't wage the war. We don't wage war as the world does. So we do, we live in the world. We live in the same circumstances as everybody else, but we don't wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And I hope some of you have been taking that into practice uh, these last, uh, this last couple of weeks. We don't wage war as the world does. Now we do wage war. We do live out there and we are fighting for what's right, but not like the world does. And we don't use our own strength. We don't use our own uh, methods. We don't use our own ideas. We use the ones by God that have divine power. What does that mean? God-infused power to demolish the things and the arguments and everything that sells itself up against the knowledge of God. And I hope you've been practicing that. We also read from Psalm 46 that God is our refuge and strength. 
an ever-present help in trouble. So if we are doing that and waging in, uh, living and waging war as, uh, as God has given us the power to do, when we're in trouble, we feel scared or we need help, we go to God who is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Amen? We don't run to, who else could we run to? Maybe our spouse, maybe our family, maybe a book, maybe an ideal, maybe a politician. Not all of those things are bad. Some of those things are good, but you don't run to them first. You run to God first. Amen? I, I can tell you this. Having, we, Val and I now, especially during COVID, have dealt with a lot of people in crisis in the last six months, however long it's been, five, six months. And very often, when you're talking to people or counseling people, one of the things you realize is that they are running to the wrong place for help, and that's why things get worse. Right? Now, it's, some things are obvious. Some people run to the bottle. Right? That's obvious. I think a lot of us can say, yeah, it's probably not a good idea. Or they run to pills or they run to whatever. Okay, it's probably not a good idea. Those things are obvious to us. But you know, sometimes it's worse, guys or girls. You know your three or four friends that you've grown up with and they're toxic? It's, it's not good to go to them either and tell them your problems. No. Yesterday during the prayer meeting, Pastor Omri uh, said he was reading through Job. Okay, and I encourage you to read through Job. One of Job's biggest problems is that his three friends who were trying to help him were all idiots. <laughs> Job finally figures out at the end that they're idiots. But for a while, he lets them talk. And they've all got their ideas of why Job is suffering. They've all got their ideas of why Job's going through trouble. And they're all wrong. Even the guy that says, well, you offended God. Which seems, at first, Job was like, yeah, you're probably right. The young man, the cocky young man, right? He comes and says, I know why this is happening. It's because you're doing bad and God is punishing you. And, and Christians sometimes, hello, we get like that with each other, right? What are you doing wrong? Hey, what are you doing wrong? God is maybe punishing you. Don't get involved in that. Don't get messed up in that. Run to God first. Then you can involve other people. But when you put God first and you put God's context and understanding first, you have a lot better chance of coming out on top. Amen? Okay. So remember, we can go to God through all things. Now, some of you may have heard of the great preacher Charles Spurgeon, and he said this quote, and I want to just share this to you before we get into some more scripture. He says, we are too prone, prone means we're too likely to engrave our trials in marble and write our blessings in sand. Okay, so I'm going to say it one more time, and then I'm going to explain it a little bit. He says, we're too prone to engrave our trials in marble and write our blessings in sand. And so what he means by that is something's happened to you in the past. You've been hurt by somebody. Let's say somebody uh, hurt you in a relationship or somebody hurt you at work. And you take, a, you take a, a chisel and a hammer and you put that in marble in your life. And you're like, hurt, pain, regret jealousy and you hold on to it and you'll still be you'll be in your 50s and going oh when i was 21 such and such and you're still people are going wasn't that 30 years ago yeah but it's in marble but in those 30 years since god has done so much good in your life but you've written those in sand and you, you get the idea right you ever been on a beach if you write something in sand it's only a matter of time till the wind blows the sand or the water comes and it's gone and we tend to forget the good things that god is doing in our life and only remember the things that bring us pain well, why is that? You know, actually, psychologically and physiologically, there's reasons for that. Uh, pain is actually also part of what gave us to tell us to stop doing things. Did you know that? Yeah. Did you know that? Yeah. Uh, once upon a time, a bunch of people would do a bunch of crazy things, and they'd see someone die from it, and then go, okay, don't do that again. 
they would learn a lesson. In the same way that babies that are learning to walk right now, they will stub their toe and go, oh, oh, that hurt. I want to try and avoid that. Right? Because if they didn't have that, as C.S. Lewis called it, I've said this before recently, that pain is God's megaphone to the world. Pain is not always bad. But what happens is we have to realize that we don't immortalize pain. Don't enthrone or enshrine your pain. Okay? Many of us are going through tough times right now during the COVID or even uh, we've gone through tough times in the past and you make those things almost an idol in your life. And in fact, they come to define who you are. You know? Oh, that's so-and-so. They've been through so much. That's so-and-so. They went through that. They went through this. It's a dangerous place to be because when you're constantly living from a source of pain and the source of anger, that, as Star Wars told us, okay, anger leads to suffering, okay? And suffering leads to death, okay? It's true. When you're constantly living from a source of pain and anger, you become someone who doesn't see the life that's out there, the life of God that's offered to you. Now, that's the one end, being stuck in pain, and there's another end to it. Did you know that? Now, I don't know who this person is, but his name is Davis, so he must be amazing. Uh, This guy, Brett Davis, was preaching. I heard about this, and he said something. He was talking about the transfiguration, okay? Now, just to recap, for those of you who don't know, the transfiguration is when Jesus was transfigured, became, uh, they saw the glory of God fall upon Jesus, his disciples saw that, and they saw Moses and Elijah standing next to him on a mountain, and they were, like, amazed at what was happening. The disciples saw this. It's called the transfiguration. You can Google it later, okay? And it was an amazing moment, and the disciples, when it happened, the followers were like, oh, oh, this is amazing. Let's build a, let's build a temple right here. Let's, let's build a shrine right here. And remember, this will always be the spot where we saw the glory fall upon Jesus. And we saw Moses and Elijah. And Jesus is like, no, you don't get it. Now, Christians, hello, especially Pentecostals, eh? us Pentecostals and charismatic brothers and sisters, we get caught up in chasing mountaintop experiences. Okay. We remember the time that God moved and something amazing happened or we saw something or we heard something. And those are all good things. But then it becomes finding the next one. Now listen, I'm 42 years old. I've been going to 40 castle services. I know when I'm always chasing the next life-changing experience, perhaps none of the ones we experienced actually changed our lives. Huh? Uh-huh. And my, my friends, I'm going to tell you, I, I, I hope you know that I truly do deeply love you. And I'm only speaking to our church now, but maybe to the wider church. I've been Pentecostal my whole life, and that's what's wrong with our churches right now. Because instead of being changed into the image of Christ, we're just looking for the next high. And like I've said before, I've preached this before, we become like spiritual junkies. And that is why the rest of the church can look at the Pentecostal charismatic church sometime and go, what are you guys doing? Why are you always trying to make something happen, trying to manufacture something? And then we're saying, well, Richard, are you talking about living in the overflow? Isn't that part of living in the overflow? No, because living in the overflow means you're always in it. Not trying to chase some sort of mountaintop experience. The danger in chasing that momentous feeling, that ultra feeling... Now. I want you to listen to this. This is something I came up with. I did this for an original thought, but I want you to think about this. That you need to learn to find God, to live in the overflow. You need to learn how to find God living in the meaningful mundane. 
Okay, one more time. You need to live in the overflow. You need to learn how to find God in the meaningful mundane. Because most of us live normal lives. How many of you have to go to work tomorrow? Right? How many of you have kids to take care of? Right? How many of you have bills to pay? If you don't put up your hand, I want to be your friend. Okay? How many of you have concerns about the direction of the country or the direction of the world? Put up your hand. It's okay to be honest. Right? That's the mundane, the norm. We're all living normal lives. And sometimes preachers and teachers are trying to tell you to live up here in the sky and whatever. Now, some people are stuck in their pain and never getting out of that. And other people are just so up there in the sky that they're no good, they're no use. We have to learn how to live in the meaningful mundane and find the life of the overflow in that. That even though sometimes you've got to stop and sit down at a computer and pay all your bills, it doesn't mean God's not moving. Just because sometimes you've got to sit down and have a discussion with your kid about their schoolwork or have a discussion with your wife about whether you should redo the asphalt or not in the driveway doesn't mean you're not spiritual. It doesn't mean you're not living in the overflow. You're human. And you're living in the meaningful mundane. We're going to learn how to do that. So the main verse we've been going through, I think, Jeremiah, you have it. Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what we've been talking about for, the, for a long time. So may the God of hope, so hope is the main thing, and how much joy is Paul wanting us to be filled with? How much? How much joy and peace? All joy and peace. Now joy, you've heard it said here before, but a reminder for everybody, let's define joy. Joy is not happiness. Happiness was me on, was it Friday night, when the Canadians scored to win that game against Pittsburgh. And I was running around my basement high-fiving my son and going, ah, I was happy. I wasn't joyful, because that's not what joy is. Joy is a deep, abiding, deep down inside me contentment with life and the way things are and knowing that even things are bad, even if I am in pain or whether I'm on the mountaintop, God is in control and I can be content. Joy. Okay? And peace, as Jesus said, he doesn't give us peace like the world gives. See, the world gives peace by signing contracts. Okay, uh, this country and that country, we're not going to go to war with each other. Let's sign a piece of paper, and now we agree. But that piece of paper can always be ripped up at a later date, as the world is showing us more and more. Right? Peace that the world gives us in the same sense as the joy is a deep, abiding sense of peace that no matter what's going on, God is in control and I'll be all right. As we trust in him so that you may overflow with hope. Okay, so we're going to overflow. What does overflowing mean? Remind ourselves, when something overflows, when a cup overflows, when a bucket overflows, what happens? Whatever is in there goes all over the place. So that means we're to give it away. We're to go all over the place and let it go wherever it goes. You can't control an overflow. You ever tried to do that? I, listen, at our house, you know, sometimes you're at the sink and something starts to overflow. And then instead of turning off the tap, you start trying to control. How many of you have done this? Come on. You start trying to control the flow. And your, your mind forgets that all you have to do is go like the beer, like, and you're trying with your hands and getting a, a whatever. You can't do it. You can't control God's overflow. It goes where it may. And another good thing is the overflow, when it overflows the bucket, let's say you've got something in there, it starts 
fresh water is going in there, whatever's in there starts coming out, and any sediments, any dirt, any rocks that are in there eventually finds its way out. It cleans out whatever vessel it's cleaning, and then overflows, overflows, overflows the same source water that is finishing out. So it pushes out the bad, and it means it's going all over the place. Now our problem is, is that we can get distracted. I talked about the mundane. But we can get distracted by things in our lives. I've talked about learning to live in the meaningful mundane with the power and overflow of God, but you can get distracted. I would say easily for the Christian, I'm not taking for the non-Christian, the easily the biggest idol of Christians today. Anybody want to take a guess at what I'm going to say? I would like to hear your take. For Christians. Anybody want to take a snap? See, everybody's so afraid because they don't want to be wrong. I would say it's family. I would say family is the biggest idol for Christians today. What do you mean? Aren't we supposed to take care of families? Oh, yes, but not at the expense of God. Jesus wasn't joking when he said, put my kingdom first, then all these things will be added. Sometimes I wonder what version people are reading. Now, I will tell you this. As a pastor, although I work normal and a normal job, it's true that in the past, at least, uh, many pastors would sacrifice the health of their family for the sake of the church. This is true. This would happen a lot. Not so much anymore. And I don't believe that's right at all. But what I mean is, um, today it seems that many Christians will make a decision that benefits their family before a decision that benefits the work of, of, the work of God. If that hurts somebody's feelings, I'm sorry. But I've, like I said, 42 years, I, I, the proof is in the pudding. The proof of the pudding is in the eating, as they say. I see it all the time. Okay? What else? Work. Right? Your work sometimes can be something that gets in the way. Other pursuits. Everybody's heard famous stories of, you know, someone starts a hobby or buys a cottage or whatever, and all of a sudden they're not at church anymore because whatever hobby they're doing is on Sunday mornings or whatever cottage they have needs to be taken care of and so on and so forth. And so someone who is deeply ingrained in the church is no longer around anymore because some pursuit, some other thing in life takes it over. And I would say the other creeping uh, evil in the world today is a Christian obsession with politics. And I'm going to say something, may mean nothing to any of you, but I want this to be recorded for all time, uh, that there is a growing cult inside of North American Christianity called Q. I don't even know if you know about it. You don't know about it? That's fine. But it is the, it is the outbirth of this obsession with politics. It's a cult. It's not from God at all. And it claims to know all sorts of things, special knowledge, special rulings, all that. It's, it's just Gnosticism. You know, the Bible tells us there's nothing new under the sun. It's not like we're creating anything new that God hasn't seen before and the earth hasn't seen before. But this growing obsession and cult of politics is a danger to the church. And as a pastor, I genuinely warn you to be very, very careful with your involvement in the things political. Now, you're talking to a political science major. That's what I did in school. Okay, so it's not like I don't know what I'm talking about. But I warn you as a pastor, I'm not saying be ignorant, but be very, very careful of how deep you get. And as I read a fantastic tweet, and I wish I could um, give credit to the person who said it, but I, I can't remember who it was or find it. But I want to say something, and I mean this sincerely. Spreading conspiracy theories is bearing false witness. I'll say it more succinctly. Spreading conspiracy theories is lying, and lying is a sin. Okay? And this has become a problem in the church today, especially during this COVID time. 
folks, there's a maturity that we need to get to. So this is where I'm getting to now. This is Esau Macaulay. He's a doctorate in theology. He is the assistant professor of New Testament in Wheaton College. And this is what he said. Any religion that needs a politician to protect itself is not Christianity. If death couldn't hold Jesus down, we'll be fine. Want to say that one more time? Any religion that needs politicians to protect it is not Christianity. If death couldn't hold Jesus down, we'll be fine. Amen? Folks, <laughs> it's, it's very ignorant of us to act like what's happening here is anything near to persecution or what Christians are facing. Christians in China right now are being murdered for being Christian. Even Muslims in China are being murdered right now for being Muslims. And we're being told, wear a mask and six, sit six feet away from each other. Ooh. How bad is that? Look, see, I believe this is a, a mature response to the call of the government. Look around you now. We're doing it. We're following the rules. We open things up to make sure we can be spaced. And because of our obedience and gentleness and listening to the government, we are now able to gather even more people every week. Okay? They didn't come to us and say, don't say the name of Jesus. That's what they do in China. Yeah. You're not allowed to even say his name. And if you say his name, you're not allowed to have a job. You're not allowed to go to the grocery store. You know? I mean, that's what they're facing. It's also ignorant of us to keep on thinking of Christianity from a North American point of view. I've said this before. I'm going to say it one more time. The average Christian in the world today is a 22-year-old woman of color somewhere in Africa or Latin America. And they don't go to church conferences, and they don't watch preachers on YouTube, and they don't have much money, and they have no idea what we're talking about over here. They probably think we're crazy for wasting so much time with the things we talk about. That's the average Christian today in the world, not you or me. That's the reality. And it's time for us, and I believe it's to live in the overflow, it's time to get mature. And to act like responsible Christians. You know, maturity is attractive. Ladies, I want ladies, I want to listen to you, younger ladies. I know you, Mary, you're a younger woman, okay? Would you rather a, young, a mature guy or an immature guy? Mature, why? Imagine you meet somebody, he seems amazing, he's, he's fantastic, right? He's so nice, he seems amazing. But then you start talking to him and you find out, oh, he's still doing all these immature things. You're going to be like, Ugh. right? Ugh. No thanks, Right? In the same way, sometimes people come and you think, oh, you've got to come to church. Jesus is the answer. You've got to come to Jesus. He's the best. He's the greatest, whatever. And then, and then they sit down and talk with you and you start saying all these immature things and you're messed up in conspiracy theories and you're messed up in this and you're messed up and you're obsessed with other things and they're going, Ugh, I'm not a tra- I, don't want, I don't want that. I don't want that. Maturity matters. Maturity is important. We need to grow. Seeing baby Olivia here today was amazing. Uh, Daniel and Lisa came with baby Olivia and she's learned to walk, right? Before COVID, she was just a baby little baby football that you carry around. And now she's walking, and they're getting all upset because she was running around making noise. I'm like, oh, who cares? Let her make noise and throw things. She's, a, she's growing. She's maturing. Right? Now, maturing can be nasty. Maturing can be noisy. Maturing can be dir- dirty. Anybody who's had a teenager knows how disgusting it can be. Right? But that's okay. That's part of life. We need to grow. I was sharing yesterday, I want to remind you now. Can you put up the picture there, the, the Aslan picture of Jeremiah? So this is a picture from a movie, Chronicles of Narnia, of, of Lucy and Aslan. 
Now, if you don't know these movies or these books, C.S. Lewis, who was a Christian writer, wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. This is one of them. And in the book, Aslan, who here is a lion, or in Liam Neeson, um, he's a lion, and he represents Jesus, okay? In the book, if you read it, you know that he's Jesus, basically, in, in the allegory. And Lucy represents us. She's a Christian like us. Anyway, in this particular story, this is the second time that Lucy has seen him. She hasn't seen him for many years in her life. Long story, okay? But here's how the conversation goes at this point. And she says, Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger. And Aslan says to her, that is because you are older, little one. Not because you are, she said. And he says, I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. And now it's this picture to tell you what Aslan is teaching her is not that he's actually grown. It's just that because she's more mature, she can see how much bigger he actually is. And he's telling her, actually, the more you get mature, you'll see how I'm even bigger than what you see now. And it's the same with Jesus. You see, every time we get to, uh, God can't do that, and God reveals something to us, and we go, oh, it's true, he really is great. And his greatness just gets big. There is no limit to his greatness. And we're going to read later, it's immeasurable. And so we can, oh, I don't know if the world can get through that. Uh, you know, somebody recommended an article I read this morning, and, and they're all like, oh, I don't know if the world can get through this. <laughs> it always has, okay? It always has. And until Jesus comes back, it always will. And he's bigger and greater than anything going on in the world today. And it's time to act about it like mature people. The famous love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13 you know, love is patient, love is kind. We all know that part, but near the end, it goes on to talk about maturity. It says this in verses 10 to 12. I think I have it there, Jeremiah, 1 Corinthians 3. Maybe I don't. Yeah. When completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now, we only see a reflection as in a mirror. But then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully even as I am fully known. Amen? I want to just give you a little bit of history lesson too, because you say here, well, I mean, when I see my reflection in the mirror, I just see me the other way around. Mirrors weren't as clear, okay? So Paul, when he says we're looking in a mirror, it wasn't like mirrors today where we can like completely see exactly ourselves. It was a bit, they were like polished brass and things like that, so it wasn't a perfect image. So that's what he meant. It's like, now we only understand things like a, almost, we can make out what's happening, but it's not 100%. So sometimes when you're a Christian, it's okay to start somewhere. Everybody's got to start somewhere. And we start with uh, 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 maybe a, a, a little bit of understanding. We're not too sure what things mean. We start reading the Bible. We start praying. We don't understand. It's okay. Growth is a part of the Christian life. But it's not okay to stay a baby. In the natural, that would be a problem. Right? Imagine someone, they call it a failure to, failure to thrive. That's what they call it in the medical um, um, realm, right? And the same way Christians can get that problem of failure to thrive. And that's what I'm seeing so much of today. Christians throwing hissy fits over things like masks. Okay? I told you, I, I hate wearing this thing. I don't like it. But I'm doing it because it's the right thing to do. And I'm mature. And I realize if I want to have church with my brothers and sisters, I'm going to do this. Now, if the government came knocking and said, hey, Richard, you can't talk about Jesus anymore, well, you better believe I'd disobey them, just like Peter and John did. But that's not what they're asking us to do. And a mature Christian has to stop and say, you know what? I'm going to do what I need to do 
to make sure that the church still continues to operate. Right? So, what happens when we become Christian? How do we start maturing? Let's go back to a verse we've been looking at a lot, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. God makes us brand new. And so we're able to start over and start learning. And like I said, it can be difficult. It can be noisy. We're going to fall down. We're going to scrape our knee. We're going to break a, a thing. We're going to whatever. It, it, stuff happens. Maturity isn't always clean. But the, one, of the two, one of the amazing things is that, one, we have the Holy Spirit to help us. And, two, we have other Christians around us to help us. Right? So are you, have you been made brand new? It's a question for you to ask yourself this morning. Have you been made brand new? If you haven't been made brand new, then you have a decision to make. Say, I want to follow this Jesus. You know, I'm telling you that living a mature Christian lifestyle is incredibly rewarding. It's incredibly rewarding. It doesn't make you better than other people, but it's a rewarding way of living. And I encourage you to look into it. Let's start a new life today. And so I want to join a prayer that Paul had for the Ephesians. I find our churches a lot like the Ephesians. I, I think we're like the church in Ephesus. So let's go to um, Ephesians, uh, the, the chapter, uh, the, excuse me, thank you. The, that's what I meant. For this reason I kneel before the Father. Paul's praying for them. From whom every family in heaven and on earth derives his name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. Okay, I want to stop for a second. You see, the power, remember, we, have, we don't fight with weapons that the, war, that the world has. We have power, weapons with divine power to demolish strongholds. And those weapons, right, uh, through, come through the power of His Spirit in our inner being. Right? It's not outward. It's not just for show. It's something that's deep inside. So if you do have those hurts that we talked about that are chiseled in marble, those weapons are able to smash that marble into dust. Amen? And that's... What we need, it's, I think Paul is recognizing here and telling us that he knows it starts with a Christian, it starts with the inner being. If your inner self is not healed and is not ready, whatever is on the outside, the Bible tells us, if a vessel on the outside looks nice but inside is dirty, it's no use. Okay? So same thing with us. We need to take care of that, that, that inner self, and God will through the power of the Spirit, clean our inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Okay, now, we talked about this at the beginning. Christ may dwell in your hearts. What's the word dwell mean? Anybody want to guess? Yeah, stay. It means more than live. Okay? It means more than just live. My kids dwell in my house. Okay, what that means is they go wherever they want. They can take whatever food they want. They can do whatever they want because it's their home. Okay, and so when we allow Christ to come live in our hearts, dwell in our hearts, it's his house. He arranges the furniture. He decides what we're eating for dinner. I'm being silly here but with my analogy, but you get the idea. God comes and lives in your heart. What happens is, as we talked about, he comes and lives in your house, and you overflow, so all the other stuff flows out. All the other things that have been preoccupying your heart flow out. Not that your family gets displaced and everything. Not, not that. The things, the negative things, the things that aren't good for you, God gets rid of. He, and I pray, he says, being rooted and established in love, you may have power together with all the Lord's holy people. So stop. 
One, being rooted and established. I already preached this, was it last year already? The Rooted series, I think was sometimes in 2019 on this verse. Rooted and established in love. You will not move is what he's saying. You have power together with the Lord's holy people. Again, so that's us all being together. Okay, ready now. To grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Okay, so again, he's being dramatic here. He's saying how wide and uh, long and high and deep. What's he getting at? There's no measurement to the overflow. It's so overflowing that you can't measure it. And it's a love that surpasses knowledge. This is actually super important in our world today. Because we live, listen, in a lot of good ways, we live in a society that demands rational proof for things. Okay? I appreciate that. But God's love has no limits. It cannot be understood. Okay? It goes beyond knowledge. Maybe it's something you feel where? In your inner being. So that you may be filled to the measure of how much of the fullness of God? Again, all. All. How many of you would like to feel all of the fullness of God? How many of you? Amos. Good. Just Amos. I'm God. Okay. Amos. Amos gets it because he put up his hands first. Okay. Now, here's what's important about this verse. He goes on this first part. He's talking about us and about what. Look at all the benefits we get. Power through his spirit and inner being. Christ comes and dwells in our hearts. We're rooted and established in love. We have power together as a people. And then God's overflowing love that's so big, so wide, whatever. And it's filling us with all the fullness. But then he finishes with this. And this is what I would like you to do. Stand up with me, please. We want to mature. As Christians, living in the overflow means we realize that sometimes there's some sediment in our bucket of life. Sometimes there's things we're holding on to that we need to get rid of. So we let God's love and power come and flow into our lives and just overflow and overflow and take all those things out. And he's going to root us and establish us and come and dwell in us and give us power through his spirit and give us love that surpasses knowledge and be filled to all the fullness of God. And so we take that and we're like, oh, benefit, 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 benefit. And we stop and we do what Paul does here now. We don't say, now look at me. I'm full of the spirit and power and I have love that surpasses all knowledge. We don't say that. We say, ready? I want you to read this part. Can you guys, it's very small. Sorry about that. I, something happened with the fonts. If you can't, Read it, because it's so small. Those of you who can, read it with me right now. Starting at verse 20. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen? That's what you do. You turn, and even in your own private life, whatever, you turn and say that to God. Now to him, again, we're back to immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. This verse has been preached about many times by much greater preachers than I. I'm not going to try and summarize here, but just think, you cannot outdo God's love. You cannot do God's, out God's goodness. You can't do out God's healing. You can't outdo God's provision. You just can't. You can try, you can try, you can try, but you can't. According to his power, again, that's a work within us, in our inner being, right? So to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, as Vals and the team sang earlier, through all 
generations. Amen? You cannot, oh my goodness, you cannot, and some of you are sitting here today and you've got family members maybe who are following Christ, you've got children who aren't following Christ. You can't, you can't, your family can't run from the blessing that's on your life. They can't. They try. My own family members do it. It's, it almost gets comical. Right? Because God says, here's a promise. And it's like we can't, we, sure, uh, I could reject it and say, no, God, I don't want you to save my family. But I don't say that. I say, yeah, yeah, Lord, let it be. Let's, let's do that. And then God's like, okay. And you, you know, when you're singing before, how many of you like that song, The Blessing? You know when it goes, uh, uh, I got to read, I don't want to get it wrong. Is it here? Um, May his favor be upon you in a thousand generations for your family and your children and their children and their children. How many like that part? You feel that? Do you feel it? Sort of like, why does it bubble up? Because you love your family. You love your grandkids. You love your great-grandkids. You love whatever your aunts or uncles, your nieces, your nephews. You love them so much and you feel it, whatever. But that's not just you. That's the love of God. God's, God's intention is that all would be saved. And mature Christians today, we need to do whatever we can to help usher in the people into the kingdom of God. Amen? And that might mean that to become a mature Christian, we need to put aside our own likes, our own dislikes, our own ideas of what's, white, what's right and what's wrong, and what's white too. We need to, that's a whole other conversation. Um, we do need to put aside uh, that as well. And stop living in the past and engraving our, our, our hurts in marble and forgetting our blessings in the sand, and real, stop chasing just mountaintop experiences and realize that everything, everything, everything we do, everything we do can and will be infused by the power of God, and God can use those things, even the most mundane things, to help reach our loved ones and our neighbors. Amen? How many of you believe? Now, I want to close today, not just praying for you, but I want to pray for those people. I know... Um, I can tell you that a few of us in the church have been talking. We really feel that we're entering a season where people are going to be needing help and needing prayer. You know, I'm encouraged. Uh, people like Rula and other people are constantly sending us prayer requests. Yeah, exactly. That's what we want to be doing. That's what we exist for. Okay? And I want, we want to be a church that becomes known for a place of healing and of love and a place where people can bring their problems and bring their hurts and their pains for sure. And we want to be a church, too, that helps usher people into the kingdom of God. Amen? That shows them that God's love is real and is powerful and is here to save today. Yeah. Amen? Mm-hmm. We're not here to fight other battles. No. There's other battles on other fronts. We'll let other people handle those battles. Right? We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Leave that to the flesh and blood. Okay? But we wrestle principalities and powers. And everything, as we talked about, everything that exalts itself above the name of God, the name of Jesus Christ, will bow its knee. Not just in the, pre- not just in the age to come, but in the present age too. Amen? So let's just pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you so much for your love. I want to thank you for your power. I want to thank you, Lord, that you are able to do immeasurably more than we could ever think or imagine. That's amazing, Lord, because we can think and imagine a lot of things. So, Lord, we pray right now for us first as a people. We pray, Lord, if there's anybody here that does not know what it means to be a new creation, Lord, Lord, bless them, Lord. Help them to know that you love them. Lord, help them to know the saving grace, Lord. Help them to know that the cross, Lord, paid the way, Lord, that they would, uh, 
Lord, be able to repent and come to know you as our Lord and Savior. Lord, I pray right now for anybody in our families, Lord, who are just sort of struggling with things that are going on, or Lord, are, are trying to run from the promise uh, that's in their life. Lord, we pray right now you'll speak to them. Right now, Lord, in Jesus' name, on this Sunday morning, that they'll know that you love them, and it's time to come home uh, to the kingdom of God. Amen. And Lord, we just lift you up. And Lord, we praise your name. Lord, we thank you, Lord. That everything, every generation, Lord, we blessed because of what you have done. Lord, I pray for your blessing over transformation and everybody in this house, those who are watching online, those who couldn't make it this week. Lord, may this, every, all of us, Lord, become people who welcome the hurt, the lost, Lord, and those who are searching, Lord, that they may come to know you as Lord and Savior. We ask in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Now go, now don't, Go and think, oh, that felt good. Go live in the overflow now. Okay? You go out there and you spread the goodness, you spread the love of God wherever you go, even in the mundane, every coffee you buy, every online order you make, every interaction at work. Go and do